Carlos, welcome to the podcast. It's really nice to, to be able to chat with you today. I'm really excited to hear the different things that you're doing and for the audience to get some nice takeaways from this. Welcome. Elena, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to join you today. Carlos, just to give our audience a little bit of a context of who you are and, and your background, can you give me a little snapshot of your career journey up to where you are today? Sure, I started my career after graduate school as a journalist in Latin America. I'm from El Salvador originally, and I grew up as a refugee here in, in the U.S. And when the war ended, I went back and spent three years as a reporter covering the post-war period in El Salvador. Interestingly enough, a friend of mine in grad school had become a consultant at PwC, and her boss wanted to publish a book, but he just didn't want to write it. So they were looking for a ghostwriter for his book. They contacted me. I came back to the U.S., Ghost wrote the book for this partner. When the project was complete, he said, hey, I think you'd be a good consultant. You know, How would you like a job? So I didn't know anything about consulting at all. I wound up at PwC as an associate. Long story short, wanted to becoming a partner at Accenture and then later Ernst & Young. After my consulting career, I joined a really amazing company called World 50, which uh, I always say it's secret Davos. It's a, it's a private CXO club for about 1,500 chief blank officers from all over the world. So I had a chance to, to work on innovation projects with CHROs, chief marketing officers, chief communications officers, finance, supply chain procurement. It was a really phenomenal kind of inside look at what life is like as a chief executive officer and, and as a CXO in anywhere in the world. In 2015, no, sorry, in 2019, I left for 50 decided to become an independent researcher and author, which is what I do today. And I'm also on the faculty at the University of Maryland Business School and at Georgetown Business School. Very nice. Um, you know, it's interesting because you are, you're, you're, like the theme that comes out of your career when I hear you talk about it is like communication. Communication, communication, communication. And I'm sure as, as of course, uh, you're going to tell us more about um, your book, but I'm sure that you're probably the right person to talk to when it comes to influence and having experience in such different different organizations and especially in the the world 50 uh, organization I think it's going to be um, I think it's quite insightful of things you can bring to the table so I'm really curious to know more about that well Elena, it's interesting when I was at world 50 people would always ask me what's the number one issue that that keeps CXOs awake at night, you know, mm -hmm. quote unquote. And, and I would always tell them, it doesn't matter where I'm in a meeting with chief digital officers or CHROs or, or CPOs. It's amazing how the most common challenge is storytelling. Uh, the, it's remarkable how at, at a very high level, that really becomes a great determinant of success in the C-suite. You have to tell a story to your board a story to your CEO, a story to your peers, to your direct reports, to the, to the company, to your customers, to Wall Street sometimes. And um, it, it, is, it is a defining problem of being a very, very high level senior executive that being able to tell a great story, to persuade, to convince a team that the way you wanna do things is the right way to go, becomes, I think one of, the, it is the, my opinion, the most important determinant of success the one being chemistry, you get along with everyone else. But by far, narrative and storytelling were a, a paramount issue. And when we had guests like reporters and storytellers in our summit, it was always a phenomenal conversation. There were so many questions and that's part of what inspired me to write this book was the, the, the time I saw uh, spent with people who really value storytelling as a leadership and management discipline. Mm. 
Hey you, thanks for watching. If you're enjoying this episode, make sure to share it with friends and family who might find it interesting. Make sure to hit the subscribe button as well to stay up to date on weekly new videos that are gonna be coming out with some awesome guests that I bring on. And uh, if you have any questions, use the comment section to ask me questions, to interact. I look forward to talking to you. And I would imagine that will require uh, some some level of specific soft skills that we like to talk about, right? Like empathy and emotional intelligence. Well, it's all it's all part of that. But um, I'm curious. So a lot of people that listen to this to this podcast are either working in talent development or they're entrepreneurs, right? Um, aspiring kind of uh, business business leaders. Um, and one of the questions I get quite often is, you know, what does it really take to get to that? to that C-level suite of your career. And from what I understand, it's you know communication, but I'm curious, how do you see it? Is it something that can truly be developed, that charisma? Because there's a, there's a, there's a, a charisma piece when it comes to storytelling, right? And there's also that confidence. So do you feel that anybody can develop that or do you feel it's just innate and you either have it or you don't? I think it's somewhere in between. I wouldn't say anyone can be a C-suite leader. Uh, uh, but I, I, I do think there are, there are things that you can work on. And it's an interesting thing. I, I do a lot of coaching and I was just started coaching a woman who was an executive in the fashion industry who, who just sort of reached this level. And she has a very interesting challenge because she's the fourth person to have her, she's head of sales in this company in three years. And so she we walked in knowing full well that this is going to be an issue. It isn't the product, it's, it's, the, it's the way in which they work with retailers. And as we talked about this role, the thing that we kept coming back to is early in your career, you are measured by, what I, by visible things, numbers on a spreadsheet, how many cars did we sell, right? How many things were shipped? How many people do you manage? How many computers are up and running in a given day? As you move higher and higher, especially with the C-suite, you're now sort of judged by things that are not so visible. Again, I always say it's like when you, those movies where somebody's going through a whole bunch of lasers to steal a diamond, right? They're there, but you can't see them. And that's kind of what it's like. Suddenly, if you get along with the C-suite peers, that becomes critical. Do people believe you, right? Do you seem authentic? Uh, do you understand all the personalities of the board? So these are, while there's some intuitive I suppose, ability in these uh, areas, they can all, I think, be developed over time. This is why people who are very good coaches you know, do what they do, consultants, but also the, there's always a lifelong learning. The, the best C-suite people I work with are constantly doing two things. I mean, one is they're always learning, they're always reading, and they're always talking to their peers. In fact, uh, we used to always say the foundation of World 50 was that it, it's very easy to become isolated as you reach the top levels of global business. The more isolated you are, the the lower your chance of success is. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, well, luckily, I guess there's been a lot of recognition in this space that this is so important. And particularly, I, at least in the talent development world, I've seen this really in the last few years. And that's because the talent that's coming into the workforce is no longer there to simply kind of, you know, get that paycheck. And some are to an extent, but 
the generations coming in are really looking to have that purpose, to have that leader, to have, you know, uh, transparency in organization, to be able to be creative and innovative and really feel that they're, they have the safety, so to say, to do that. And I think that more and more leaders are starting to recognize that, which is why I think also I've seen coaching, executive coaching pick up in the last few years. It's been popular, but I've seen a huge, at least in, in our world, like a huge increase in demands for executive coaching because, talent has always been a challenge and it's be, it's becoming more of a challenge as the world's changing the 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 you know new generations coming in and, and just profile of the worker and just the way that we work especially over the last couple of years of all the shifts that have happened have you seen that as well absolutely and i think there are two issues at play here the first one is you mentioned the first one which is there was a time when we had this idea of work was on one side of of, a, of the of the line and and life was another and you quote unquote balanced life and work i think today that isn't the case especially after covid there was an integration of work and life so it isn't one's the other they're the same thing and this realization that i spend most of my day at work and i'm not going to suddenly start living when, when work is over work is a part of life mm -hmm. and so that that realization especially with younger workers, has put demands on work that maybe were not there in the past. People expected to do more and do different things uh, in their life. The other thing is the movement towards what I would call sort of sustainability in the broad sense for corporations. It's interesting. I was at a chief sustainability officer dinner one night, and I was asking the table, how do you define sustainability? And somebody had a phenomenal answer. It was one of the European executives. And she said, we define it this way. She's a she's sustainability officer for a big automotive company. For us, it's a, a social license to operate. Imagine she said that you, you, you're, the, you're the CEO of a big company and you have to fill out an application every year and pass a test in order to keep being a company for the next 12 months. So the, the idea of sustainability is that every time you go take that test, you can pass the test. Now, the best companies are always trying to put new questions on the test <laughs> so that they can answer questions others can't. Are you recycling? Do you measure carbon emissions? The worst companies are trying to not have to answer those kinds of questions. So for her, it was, I thought it was just this phenomenal idea that she said in our company, we're always trying to get the teacher to put an, a harder and harder question because we know we can answer it. And, and we're always trying to push what it means to be given license to operate by your country, by society. And I, I think with, with that movement, what happens now is that there's an external pressure for a company to be ethical, for a company to demonstrate that it has equitable practices and other issues that, are, that didn't exist in the past. So you now you have this, if you're, if you're head of talent, you have these two issues. One is external, as society puts new demands in the company, and the other is internal as your, as your employees put new demands on work. And I think those are the two things that I've seen that are changing this conversation. Mm. Yeah, I, I always, when I have these conversations about talent, this, you know, the, the reports from Gallup and various other McKinsey's 
of this world are kind of coming out to to say how how many people are actually disengaged in their work and um surprisingly that number hasn't changed and you know and i'm always curious of when that number is going to come down it's, i think it's like an 80 or 75 or 80 percent of employees are disengaged and i'm always thinking like how does that actually relate to performance right so from a leadership perspective as well like it's it's so difficult it's so difficult to to address this challenge but and I'm hoping we're going to see this with kind of new new ways of work and new generations coming in, because I feel like we've just brought awareness to it in recent years, but no change has actually been taking place. And I think it's going to take probably a few more years for us to really lower those numbers and for people to be engaged, because I just can't imagine how much money is being lost when people are disengaged. And we know, I mean, there are numbers around us. So there are metrics, obviously, um, around these things. And then on top of that, just the whole well-being aspect as well, because you know, being in an organization and feeling connected that, you know, if you don't feel like your individual values are aligned, or if you're not sure what your purpose is in that organization, it's very difficult to then also, it impacts your well-being. So whether it's mental well-being, right, or just your overall wellness, essentially, because you're just spending hours doing things you don't truly enjoy. Um, but I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I'm always curious of when, when those numbers are going to go down. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it is interesting that some of the most innovative what I would call HR thinking is, is happening in, in places that you wouldn't expect. For example, companies that, are, that have embraced neurodiversity. And I'll give you a real concrete example. I, I have a friend who's CEO of a small software testing company. Other than he and the founder, everyone is on the autism spectrum. And, and here's an interesting story. They used to have all hands meetings like everybody else has. So everybody had to come into a big room and just hear the news from the company, the typical enhanced meetings. They noticed that there were people who were never who would never speak. They would never engage to use their term and they would never ask questions or, or feel like they were part of the conversation. In the traditional model, those people would be seen as, as that they had a problem. They had an issue. You're not connecting. You have to fix this problem. Why can't you engage? They sat down and talked to these people and they said, we don't like talking in front of other people. We feel nervous. So could we join by Zoom? This was pre-COVID. I think this is three or four years ago. We want to join virtually. So they said, well, there's no reason why you can't join virtually, although you're in the building. So they said, okay, fine. You don't have to come to the actual physical room. So now all of a sudden, a lot of the people who weren't talking are talking. There was something about being connected digitally that made them able to talk. But there was still a smaller group that still wasn't connecting. When they talked to them, they said, I don't like showing my face. Can I put an avatar onto Zoom mm -hmm. and just I'll create an image and let me speak behind the image. They said, okay, no reason why you can't do that either. So now you have an avatar. Suddenly everyone is engaged. Mm -hmm. Some people are in the room. Some people are on Zoom. Some people are on Zoom behind an avatar. And, and what the CEO told me was we had to rethink what what is an all hands meeting right because this particular population didn't see it the way a normal workforce would and i and i've heard other examples of ideas that are really different and as he told me it's not the employee's problem it's our conception of what hr is in this company and we have to rethink it they just hired a new head of sales they never saw the person they, they did all of the interviews by Zoom with the video turned off. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine any other company where you would hire a chief sales officer and they've never been seen? Mm 
Um, mm. Another interesting thing they do is somebody, some people who are on the autism spectrum sometimes have a hard time with social cues. My son is, my younger son's 14 is on the spectrum. And, and someone said, it's too bad that people don't come with an FAQ. It would be really nice if I could read uh, something about you. And they said, well, why can't we invent it? What, mm. What's stopping us? So they said, you're right. So they created a document, everybody from CEO on down, that is an FAQ. And the FAQ includes things like, how do I like to be contacted? Am I a morning person or afternoon person? Is it better to text me or to email me? So on and so forth. Then somebody said, well, we can't call it a human FAQ. That's not such a great name. So, so someone said, well, we'll call it a biodex. Okay. And so everyone in this company from CEO on down has a biodex. They encourage you before the first time you interact with someone, or if you're a new employee, read the biodex of the person. It'll help you understand who they are and how they work. And I kept thinking, why isn't this everywhere? Right? It's not just for an autistic workforce. It, who couldn't use the biodex of someone you've never met before? So th they are, this is one example of what I think is a really interesting company and they're very smart and creative founders. But I, I, I do think there's always at the margin innovation, creativity in addressing some of these issues and the, the best companies do this. Hmm. I love this FAQ, the human FAQ biodex. That is, I think it's a fantastic that is a brilliant idea. Kudos to them. Brilliant, brilliant idea. Um, you know, you mentioned you mentioned a couple of different things. First of all, yeah, I you now make me kind of question as you're speaking. I was like, that is so true about engagement. Um, that is so spot on. And I'm curious of how much engagement opportunities are lost because we don't get to know our team members, which we know as much as companies and, you know, leaders praise them on, on, you know, the culture of connectivity and transparency, the reality. And when we get in a lot of these companies, there's a, there is a disconnect in, in many cases. Um, and, and depending on the companies, some do better than others, but there is a huge disconnect in terms of just having these relationships for managers to make time, right? To have these one-to-one -one conversations to get to know their team members, because you're right, um, especially in the world of remote work, when you are joining somebody remotely, if you don't intentionally make time as a manager to understand your team member, which again, sadly, many managers still do not, not to the point that we're talking about, right? So we're, there's, there's some basic communication, but not really going deeper into it. And and, you know, and again, I think it's changing and it's, it's, it's going in the right direction, but I still think many people are missing that, um, that piece, that, that listening, that getting to know your, 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 your uh, team members on, on that a little bit of a personal level, right? We don't have to be friends, but you have to know these communication things about them. It's critical. When I was a consultant, I did a, a project where we had, I think it was 10 or 12 countries that we were rolling out a, a new system in. And we were talking about Brazil. And as I was setting up the project, I gave my team my advice and I said, because my family originally is Brazilian. I said, with Brazil, here's the story. You go to Brazil when everything is fine and when it's a problem, you pick up the phone, which is kind of the typically opposite of what a what typical sort of American approach, which is I talk to you on the phone and when there's a problem, I get on a plane and come find out what the problem is. And it, it worked great. Now, why does it work that way? Because for that culture, they want to know who you are. 
right? They, they want to get to know you. So don't go when there's stress. Don't go when there's a problem. Go when things are great, when you can relax and get to know who they are, they get to know you. That way, when there is an issue, because there always is, inevitably, you'll pick up the phone. They know who you are. You don't have to build social trust at that moment. So the idea of engineering social trust, right? The, the idea of engineering a connection when you have the time and the space to do that, not in times of stress, not in times of crisis, is something I learned in consulting. Consultants are always an optional expense. <laughs> we, we know that. And so it's connecting to people when we're under high pressure, tight deadlines is critical to success. And there are, I think there are many strategies people can use as they get to know teammates or as you become a manager that, that aren't used. And I sometimes wonder why not. It, it should be as much of a priority as, as any of the operational goals because they tend to be the things that drive success at the end of the day. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, if we, if we go back to that piece on communication and persuasion, if you establish that base, that's where it's at. Like once you have that base and that relationship, everything else, it, it seems as long as you're able to maintain it, would make everything else easier when it comes to leading a team. Um, so talk to me a little bit more about this persuasion piece and, and, and the, the rules of persuasions, your book. Right. So I'll tell you a little bit of background. So the book is called The Rules of Persuasion, and its origin is a little over a year ago. I, I wanted to, to volunteer with nonprofits. So I, I signed up to a website called Catch Fire, and you can look for projects that you can do pro bono. And I came across a, a gentleman outside the U.S. who is the chairman of an international humanitarian action agency. And he posted a project, and it went something like this. I need help. Uh, I, I'm not an entertaining speaker. I can't follow a teleprompter. I wander away from the script and my team has had it and they made me come on Catch a Fire to ask for help. And it's, it's a very senior gentleman, very distinguished. His picture was in black and white. So no one had replied. It'd been a few weeks. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll talk to him and see what's going on. So I, I, I reach out, we connect on Zoom. And the more I talked to him on this Zoom call, I began to see two issues. One is I've, I've heard dozens if not hundreds of great speakers in my career. And I, I, they tend to fall in two camps. There's a classical speaker, someone who can read a script word for word, almost like a classical musician who can play Mozart note for note. Then there are the jazz speakers, people who you give them a theme and so two or three ideas and, and they'll just make it up. And if you hit them three times, and I have, it's never the same speech twice, but it's good every time. And I said, Danny, you're a jazz speaker and you'll never be able to read a script any more than a, a really hardcore jazz music can play a Bach fugue note for note. It's gonna be challenging for you. But the other thing is this, I've looked at his materials, his speeches, and I asked him, have you ever thought about what you're there to do? You're there to persuade someone to support your organization. How do you, what is your strategy to persuade? And, and he didn't have one. So I said, look, give me a week. Let me think about this and I'll be back. So a week later, we connect. And I had taken out a book that I read years ago called Aristotle's Reddick, which is the first kind of handbook on persuasion. I'd made a PowerPoint deck with the main ideas of the book. And then we spent the next eight weeks going through this deck together. Huge success. He's ecstatic. Everything changed for him. We did a second project. Long story short, I did a dozen of these senior leader coaching projects on persuasion. And then in December, I decided to write everything down. And I put together an outline, sent it to a friend who has an agent. The agent loved it. 
And so the idea behind the book is to, to do two things, I think. Number one is to explain to people how persuasion works. Technically, we think of it as a soft skill sometimes, and in and, and Aristotle's mind, it wasn't. It, it was almost a science. It, it operates by certain principles, and it can be defined, and it can be made predictable. And the other thing is to give examples from our culture. Obviously, a book that was written 2,000 years ago doesn't have examples we can relate to. So in my book, I look at media, I look at film, I look at hip-hop, I look at art and explain with all these examples how it is that these rules operate um, in, in, in all around. Because communication and persuasion is everywhere, right? From an ad in a magazine to a commercial to a boss trying to get someone to, to take a job to trying to get a whole company to go through digital transformation. It is a fundamental human need, especially to meet, to lead and to manage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're just, we're, we're always persuading every day, something. I mean, as simple as All right, that. Please, right. right? Persuading even your partners, like where are we going to eat today? And, and using persuasion tactics, that's like the basics, right? <laughs> Except that it doesn't always work in the outside world. So we have but to- it's, it's funny, because like, one of the things that I talk about in the book is that in Aristotle's mind, there are, there are only three things that can persuade anybody of anything. One is the character of the speaker. So who are you? If you're a company, what are you? Right. So what are what are the traits, the characteristics, the history, the origin of the person who's communicating or the or the thing that's communicating? The other is the arguments and evidence and proof that you present. Fair enough. Then the third thing is emotion. And it's it's the, it's the emotion that the audience feels or the listener feels as you speak, as you communicate. What I found in coaching executives is they rarely use character either because they believe incorrectly, I think, that they shouldn't be part of the story uh, or because they, they don't know how. Emotion is very difficult for them. Again, either because it's a cultural issue that they don't want to be emotional or because they don't know how to bring it into the conversation, which leaves you with one thing. I say it's like a ship that has three masts, but only one sail. It's not going to go very far. And then you have argument. Argument, Aristotle says, it's the hardest to use and the hardest to follow. Hmm. The hardest to use and the hardest to follow. And so that means that the one thing, which is overwhelmingly, I find again and again, that executives try to use to persuade is the thing that is complicated to create, complicated to communicate to people, and that people have a hard time processing for lots of different reasons I explained in the book. What I try to tell them is that, listen, it is much easier to persuade with your own character, with who you are, and by making people feel good as they listen to you. And, and th these things are, they're almost like sitting invisible right next to you. And learning to use those radically changes how you approach a conversation with an employee, with the team, with the board. And they're, they're not that hard to do. You just need to become aware of them and to start putting them into your communication strategy. Hmm. Uh, as you're speaking also, I'm curious, so you mentioned you looked at some, like there are some cultural differences, but um, I'm curious um, in your research, we came across how does persuasion look in different countries? And a few years ago, I was in Hungary doing a workshop and I remember, and we talked a little bit about like networking and building the network. And I remember 
they were so against it. There was a group of fresh graduates from a traditional Hungarian university and they're like, Elena, we just don't do it. We don't do it. We don't ask anybody. We don't sell ourselves in that sense. Like when you're, you know, pitching. So I'm curious, have you come across anything in your research? Like how, is it, is it a very, you know, is it, is it an American thing to be using the persuasion and the storytelling or? No, I don't think so at all. In fact, in the, in the book, I use examples uh, from China, from Japan, from Latin America, from Europe, the, the, it, the Aristotle's rules are global rules, and you can find examples of them. And by the way, there they, are examples in the book from the year 700, from 2000 BC, from today, from Nike. So they span time, they span places. That said, certainly certain cultures are more attuned to be persuaded by a certain way. And the analogy I use is music. If you grow up in Japan, the sounds of Japanese classical music sound natural to you. If you grow up in Vienna, the sounds of Mozart sound natural. They're both classical music, but mm -hmm. you're used to hearing one set of keys, one set of tones more than you are the other, which is why it sounds a little bit different to you. This is an idea that Aaron Copeland laid out a long time ago. So persuasion is similar to that. You are used to being persuaded in a certain way if you grow up in culture A, you are used to being persuaded in, certain, in a different way if you grew up in culture B. And so in the beginning, it may be a little bit difficult to understand that. But over time, just the way someone who grows up in Vienna can learn to love classical music in Japan and vice versa, different people from different cultures can learn to persuade and to be persuaded in, in different ways. And I'll give you an example, right? I'm Latin American. We are used to, we are more used to emotion as a persuasive tactic because we are more comfortable in many cases speaking about emotion. And I'll give you a, good, a very real funny story. I, I have a, a very good friend whose daughter, has a daughter who was born with a, a, a problem in her skull. The, the bones hadn't fused correctly in the when she was very young. And so for the first year of life, she had to wear a protection on her head, a little helmet. And, and we would always laugh because he would tell me that he would fly from Boston, that's going to Harvard, this is school. And he would, he and his wife would, with their daughter would fly from Boston to Miami and then Miami to Montevideo, Uruguay. So the funny part was that on the plane from Boston to Miami, nobody ever mentioned the helmet. They pretended as if the helmet didn't exist. It was invisible. Not one time he said that anybody asked the question. The moment he got on the plane <laughs> from Miami to Montevideo, all they could talk about was the helmet. Why does baby have a helmet? What's the helmet do? Oh my God, my cousin had a baby with a helmet and, and the whole flight <laughs> was about the helmet, right? And so obviously if you're on the plane with the, with the Latin Americans, if, if you use an emotional appeal to persuade, it's gonna be a little bit more natural than if you're on the plane to Cambridge, but that doesn't mean you couldn't. And I think this is the key thing. You have to, you train yourself to understand how these things work and, and you can use any of those things, right? I, I live in Japan for two years and in Japan, you see all of the three things at work, you see them everywhere to more or less degrees perhaps, right? But they, they work everywhere and they can be a skillful manager, skill communicator, can use any of the three modes, I think anywhere in the world in the right setting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, I think we're all humans, right? And we all, we all want to feel connected to something. We all want to feel heard. 
Uh, we want to feel like somebody's listening to us and somebody who's addressing things that are important to us. And, and on top of that, if that person is genuine, has some, some level of charisma and knows how to storytell, I think that's kind of the magic formula. It's just, I, I think it's, it's, it's having that magic formula is because it's, although it seems simple, but it requires so much from what it sounds like of internal work to be able to have the confidence, the communication skills, right? The specific experiences with individuals, because what it, at least what I, what I understand from just talking to different people is that everybody has their own individual approach. So there's a theme that we look for as people but then to be able to connect with each individual in a room and like, let's, I don't know, you have an audience of a hundred people, right? And that's, that's where that real skill of persuasion comes in. And even then I'm under the impression there's still going to be a third of people who just won't, you know, you won't be able to persuade. Do you feel it? Do you think that there's like a percentage of just like, there's always going to be a percentage of people you just won't get through? There, there are always people who who won't or can't be persuaded. This is this this goes. It's a very interesting question you bring up because in my book I describe what exactly persuasion is. At least my my understanding of this, mm -hmm. right? It's based on work of of philosophers and psychologists, and and the way I describe it goes something like this: We're always in a state of what I call pre-audience. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? It means if you're on the subway in New York going to work. You, you're pre-prepared to become an audience. When you suddenly notice advertising, you now have a choice, right? Or if someone wants to talk to you, you now have a choice. You can decide at that point to turn on the audience button. When you turn it on, the first thing that happens is you, Nike says, just do it. Or I say to you, that's a great jacket. At that moment, the, the second step is you acknowledge the statement. You accept that it exists, <laughs> you admit, you recognize that I just spoke to you, or you don't. You walk past the billboard and you don't care, said I'm not going to engage. So now step one is you turn on, said I will become an audience. Step two is you acknowledge the message, but now it gets really interesting. So there's this thing that says, I want you to, to come work at this company. That's the statement, I acknowledge it. The great persuader then says, okay, argument, character, emotion. What can I add to that statement to make it come to life for you, right? To make it what I call vivid. As they begin to give this little statement or this little request life, you then have the third decision to make, which is, am I just gonna sit here and watch this person knock themselves out giving it life? Or am I gonna use any of my own energy and also begin to give it life. It's like in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, right? Where they're trying to get the creature to come to life. And so, okay, I decided I want to contribute a little bit. Now the speaker contributes more energy. I contribute more energy. If the speaker is good and if I'm engaged, at some moment that idea comes to life. Hmm. When the moment where the idea begins to be alive, you begin to be persuaded. Yeah. The more energy you give it, the more energy the speaker is, the more life the idea has. At some point, you are persuaded. If you continue to give it energy, you can give it so much energy that you decide to internalize it. Mm -hmm. and, and that internalization can be so strong that it can change your life. For example, you meet someone and suddenly in that one conversation, you decide to become a doctor right? or to change careers or to write a book. 
that moment gave it so much life, that concept that suddenly decide, you know what, I'm going to try to become a musician. I'm going to start running tomorrow. That's persuasion. It is the presentation of a thought, right? Mm -hmm. A proposition, a request, an idea. A great communicator gives it a little bit of energy, like a little spark. If they're good, the audience reciprocates. The two of them co-create this idea. And if it comes to life, then you're persuaded. If you keep giving it life, it continues to exist. And in some cases, it can be a life-changing event. So what's important is, is not to do that randomly, not to do it carelessly. What I tell people is think if it's an important moment, if it's an important idea you want to convince someone of, think carefully about the spark. How are you going to bring it to life? And then the audience, to your point, if they choose not to engage, and those are the people who are not persuaded, mm -hmm. right? But typically speaking, a great communicator will get most people most of the time to at least come along a little bit for the ride. And then sometimes once you're once you begin to give energy, it's so in, so interesting that you give it more, you invest more. And then at the end of the speech, you say, wow, that was a great presentation or that was a great speech or that was a great movie. That was a great whatever. Right. But it begins with that little moment, in my opinion. Yeah, that, that's a very interesting way to put it. Um, yeah, I guess we, I mean, as you're, as you're talking, I'm, I'm just, I'm just thinking like just how the persuasion works. And I mean, this is, again, it's just knowing your audience is a big part of it. And, um, that's why like in sales, for example, you know, you have to do your homework about that, the, the audience and the person you're speaking with, et cetera, because there's, yeah, it's, um, there's so much happens, I think, prior to that engagement to that individual and and kind of their thought process and et cetera um, that you may be able to tap into, but in order for you to be able to do that, you would that's that's where the homework comes in. And and then yes, and then being a communicator is what drives it home, essentially being a great communicator is what drives it home. Um, yeah, but if you think about it also like the 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 audience typically the I mean it's I'm just curious of like is there a difference between because usually when you have an audience, so whether you are a leader, whether you are giving a presentation, whether you are giving a sales pitch, the audience is somewhat already has some slight interest to be there for in some capacity, right? They already have small buy-in on some sort because they're there, right? So it's like, but but yeah, so it's 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 interesting because it's again it's. But you're right. This is a very key point you bring up later. I, I talk about there are four, for me four kinds of audience. The audience of self, which is yourself. Our first audience is us. We have to convince ourselves all the time of many things. Yeah. So there is, there is, believe it or not, the process of convincing yourself. There's the audience of one, which is you and I right now, right? We're having a conversation. So this is the, the, the audience of the one person. There's the audience of some, what, I, what can be called sometimes a specified or a social audience. All our salespeople all the employees, everybody who likes chocolate cake, right, inside the company. So, and then there's the universal audience, which is anybody, anywhere who lives now or could ever exist, right? Mm -hmm. And so the nice thing about this is this, the social audience, the specified audience is rarely a stranger. Mm -hmm. It is extremely rare for you to be asked to speak to people who don't have many things in common with you. We don't typically invite 
rowboat makers to medical conferences. Mm-hmm. We typically invite doctors to the conference, right? We, we don't typically invite actors to CEO summits. We invite CEOs. So if you stop to think about it, to your point exactly, you have all kinds of commonality, mm-hmm. right? And typically lots of goodwill. What happens so many times that if you're not, the people who aren't thoughtful, A, they don't, I want to use, they don't use the commonality and they don't, they don't excite the goodwill when that moment starts. And so it's wasted. Here you had all these things that you had in common. Here you had this goodwill. They come, nobody wants to go and be bored. Nobody wants to go and hear a, a, a meaningless presentation. They want you to be good. They want you to like that spark. And so with a little bit of thought about what would get this audience to give me a little bit of energy that I can then build on, just that one little moment can be the difference between an engaging communication with an audience or one that is forgotten the moment that it's over. And when you watch people who are very good at doing this, and I've seen dozens, right? This is exactly what they do. They have these this ability to say, they think carefully. When we used to host, you know, events and the, the good speakers would come and they'd ask, who's in the room? What are they like? What was, who was the last person who spoke to them that did very well? They, it's 10 minutes of questions. Mm-hmm. Already you began to frame, right? The strategy in such a way that the audience feels, this person came to talk to me and that's it. You do that, and you most of the time you're going to do great. And the bar is so low, unfortunately, <laughs> right? In public, in public speaking, right, or in management, that anybody who makes any kind of effort usually is already way ahead of the way ahead of the pack. Uh, yeah, most of the time, absolutely. I mean, listen, even the events, event management companies, you know, sometimes when I speak at events, I'm still surprised of how often they don't tell. It's almost like they don't care who they're invited, like uh, like they don't care to tailor to that audience. It's like I have to dig and ask, who am I speaking with? How many people is there? What are they like? What are the profiles? It's I'm all, I'm continuously just mind blown of you know I'm like don't you understand the importance of this? You know like this this piece that we're doing. You know so like I need information. Yeah, I'll bring up one other thing, and that is especially for senior executives that I coach on and that is there's a there's a gray zone between persuasion and coercion Mm -hmm. so there are two ways to get someone to do something one is persuasion which is they you convince them and do it willingly or coercion which is you force them to do it unwillingly when you're a senior person there's a factor of status which is the speaker's position relative to the audience that can make this a very difficult line to draw and unfortunately too many times People think they persuaded, but all they've done is coerced, mm-hmm. right? And, and I tell people, listen, if you walked out that door tomorrow, do your ideas persist? Do your projects continue? Do the, do the values that you think are important, do they, do they remain? Or do they walk out the door with you? If they walk out the door with you, <laughs> then you've probably been coercing and less persuading. And coercion can be as simple as, hey, I really love this management book. Why don't you read it and let me know what you think? We are, you have already tiptoed into the world of coercion and not persuading, right? And it may not seem that way. And unfortunately, this happens a lot. 
The other thing is I mentioned earlier that the second kind of audience is the audience of one. But there's two, there's two conversations you and I could have one-on-one. There's, there's a dialogue, which is you and I both want to get to an answer. There's a debate, which means you have an answer and I have a different answer. And we're going to see which answer is correct. Once again, it is, I've seen time and time again as a consultant and coach, people who, who, who honestly think they're in a dialogue and they're not. They're in a debate. Or they start in dialogue and they're still debating. We want to have a dialogue about a new project. We wind up in a debate about why the last one failed. This is very easy mm. to fall off this cliff. And it takes a lot of skill to say, I will not debate. In fact, sometimes you lose a debate in order to persuade in the dialogue. It's okay. Are you there to win a debate or are you there to persuade? The, the, it is unfortunate how many, especially I think with, with managers and leaders, they, they fall back, they default back into debate mode when really what is required is a dialogue. And that's a very different thing. It's, it is, it is, it operates by completely different rules and winning a dialogue, quote unquote, or getting a successful dialogue is a better way of putting it. A successful dialogue is completely different from success in a debate. And, and I think coercion, the line between coercion and persuasion and, and, the, and the thoughtfulness to say, I came for a dialogue, not a debate, are two of the hardest things to get right when you're a leader. Yeah, well, it, because it requires you to pause, which I think uh, in leadership positions is sometimes difficult to do. Not, it's, it's, I mean, I don't wanna say it's difficult, we're just not trained to, to, to pause because um, it requires a certain mindfulness and awareness and a certain preparation prior to specific conversations. And typically what happens is we're just running and firefighting and problem solving, right? And not making space for, 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 for that thought. Um, and until you train, you train your mind to recognize that this is a conversation. And, and, and with leadership, I mean, you probably know better than I do because you work with a lot of the senior leaders in terms of the longer you've been in a particular position, the harder it is to make that adjustment unless it's been made from the beginning, which is why, which is a conversation for a whole other podcast, but which is why I think the importance of these conversations and these kind of topics for even younger generations as they grow in their leadership roles to have that and to, to, to practice it from the beginning, regardless whether they're in a typical leadership position or not, but just to be able to have these kind of um, communication skills, which I, again, I think is a big part that's missing even in, in the young talent today. I, I'd love to add a comment to what you just said. I think you're absolutely right. It, in, in the book, I explained that persuasion is, in, in Aristotle's terms, something called a techne. It's a word that existing, existed in Greek that we don't have an English translation for. And it, and it meant a kind of scientific art, right? That had a practical goal. And what that, well, that's important is that it requires practice. So you're absolutely right. If you, if you practice and understand the rules and understand how these things work constantly, then you can be thrown into a meeting and probably do it well because you've internalized it over years and years of practice. It's like a musician who suddenly is told, hey, play something. They don't need to warm up. They don't need practice because they've been playing for 20 years. If you haven't, you're very nervous and you make mistakes because you don't, you, it hasn't been internalized. The more you have it practiced, the more you need to think about it beforehand, the more you need to plan it out beforehand. And, uh, and by the way, especially people who are very analytical, 
as I mentioned a minute ago, right, the argument and logic are the hardest things for an audience to follow. And I tell people who are very, who are very analytical, the smarter you are, the more analytical you are, the farther away you are from the average person. Yeah, so true. It's a paradox, right? The more you're persuaded by facts and figures and statistics and charts, the less likely you are to persuade the average person. So now that means you need to rethink your strategy. I worked with one person who she's a senior executive, extremely analytical person, and she wasn't, in her mind, very persuasive or effective compared to her peers. And it was because she this this is what she liked. So she thought this is the way you should be persuaded. So what we did was we began to move some of the data into stories. Then we created pauses and we said, you shouldn't go more than two or three minutes. Give the audience a chance to process what you said. Tell them a story, break it up. The more we segment, it was like, like splicing things together. We put stories and, and moments of reflection and contemplation into the argument. And so the argument never changed but it became easier to follow, mm-hmm. easier to process, easier to accept, and therefore easier to be persuaded by it. And that takes thought, right? That's a strategy. And it, again, once you've done it for a long time, it's second nature, but when you start, it's just like music. You need a teacher and you, and you need to practice. And to your point, like music, the sooner you start playing, <laughs> the, the better off, the better musician you're gonna be when everything is said and done. Absolutely. Excellent point. Excellent point. Listen, I'm really excited to read the book. Can't wait till that comes out. Keep me posted. And, um, and I know that you also have a, a wonderful blog where you address some in- interesting perspectives and about influence um, and um, persuasion. So where can people find you? Where do you most hang out at? Where can they sign up for the newsletter? Uh, it's on Substack. So if you look up Persuasion Rules, it's called, or Carlos Alvarenga, my name, either one will take you to my newsletter. You can sign up there. And the newsletter, it has, does two things. It's a companion to the book because the book will not be out until later this year. I, I give little previews of some of the parts of the book, but I also examine headlines, stories, advertising, just anything that uh, I think is a, is a way to illustrate how the rules work all around us and hopefully teach a little bit about uh, how to process and to, and to make somebody better communicator and persuader awesome and i'll make sure to put it in the description so our audience has access to it um listen i thoroughly enjoyed this conversation i learned quite a bit uh thank you for making the time uh look forward to having another chat maybe once uh once the book comes out and um we'll, we'll see what's next for you and ter- are you thinking about writing another book after this one by the way there is where it's on the drawing board for for yeah. next year so hopefully the the, the a follow-up to this will, will should be hopefully it's the project that comes after this okay. so elena it's my pleasure to join you thank you for having me it's been a pleasure yeah thank you thank you